0: Well, good morning. Good morning. Let's pray. Father, as we dig into your word, I just pray that you would open our hearts, you'd open our minds, our eyes, our ears, that we may hear the words that you have for us today. So fill us with your spirit as we sing, and stir in our hearts today. I just pray that you would wake us up, Lord, that you'd wake our hearts, our souls, our minds up, and that you would show us the way to life. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. All right, fried chicken. Anyone here like fried chicken? All right, sorry, I wish I had fried chicken to give up. But uh, more than that, I think that would, that would have actually been a distraction during worship if we had fried chicken in this room. Uh, but when you get fried chicken, my question is, uh, who likes dark, you know, you get dark meat or light meat, right? So who's a dark meat kind of person? All right, yeah, yeah, okay. Who, how about light meat? Okay, so it looks like anyone who's younger and has a fast metabolism likes dark meat, because we've got a lot of dark meat people here. Uh, (laughs) And then anyone maybe who has has experienced a slower metabolism as you've grown older has come to realize that light meat is probably the the calorie-wise way to go, right? Anyone here? Yeah, if you didn't have to worry about calories, how many of you would choose dark meat? Only a few. <laughs> All right. Well, the funny thing about dark meat and light meat, and I know we're just talking about chicken here. Um, when we look at our passage here in Mark chapter three, we're actually going to be looking at this um, at this at the difference between light and dark, and whether you choose light or dark meat in terms of chicken, I mean, I guess it doesn't really matter, uh, but whether you choose to align with the dark or the light uh, as it relates to this passage does determine everything. So uh, there's a book, Screwtape Letters, by C.S. Lewis. How many of you have read that book? Okay, a good number, a good number. So the the neat thing about that book is that it's a fascinating novel by C.S. Lewis, where he basically... Uh, he basically presents a series of letters that a senior demon called Screwtape uh, writes to his nephew, Wormwood, right? So the whole book is a, it's a fictional book, but so C.S. Lewis pretends, okay, what would it look like if a senior demon Screwtape wrote a bunch of letters to his nephew who he is training how to become a demon, Right, so that's it's. He's called the junior tempter in the book. So Screwtape is essentially mentoring his nephew to learn how he can best tempt a an individual away from God and into eternal hell. It's a fictional story. It's a fascinating way to look at this because uh, it gives you a, a glimpse into what the devil might be thinking about Christians and how he might try to come about and bring about. Temptation. So here's an excerpt from the seven uh, from the seventh letter, my dear Wormwood. Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. Right. So the patient is the Christian that they are trying to tempt. Uh, that question, at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. So the high command is Satan. Uh, Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all the pleasing results of direct terrorism and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics, at least not yet. The fact that devils are predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicions of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights and persuade him that since he cannot believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe in you. Now this was published 77 years ago, okay? In 1942. And although it was... Published 77 years ago, the relevance that this has still today to our Western culture is is uncanny. And when you think about the spiritual world, there are pretty much three different broad perceptions or or, or ways that we think about the spiritual world. On the one hand, you have many who believe that the spiritual world does not exist. Right? It's what uh, the, it's what Screwtape was talking about here. This idea that uh, the devil is some mere, you know, red-tight-wearing, uh, pitchfork-carrying little figure. I'm thinking Bugs Bunny, right? You have the, you know, the two you, in 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 all of those cartoons. You have the pitchfork, you know, you, the one that's angelic. I mean, that's how a lot of people see the spiritual world, right? You have uh, this aspect of the spiritual world being merely you're naive right you're naive if you believe in the spiritual world so it doesn't exist that's what this side is and then you have on the other side those who maybe over spiritualize everything it's like oh i got a headache it must be a demonic attack oh i didn't get a hair i didn't you know uh you know i didn't get the parking space that i was supposed to get right it must be spiritual oppression uh, or oh, I got injured. I tripped over. Oh, I wonder what demon was like hunched over that I tripped over. And that, right? I mean, you have these this other complete opposite way of thinking, and then you have this wide spectrum in between, where uh, the rest of of everyone else are basically somewhere in the middle. They're like, yes, it does exist, but I don't know if everything is spiritual. Maybe it is, I'm not really sure. And then you have the other side who is like, maybe in other countries or maybe, maybe, maybe thousands of years ago it did, but not today. So you have this wide spectrum of how Christians approach the spiritual world. Now, I'm not even talking about non-Christian, right? I'm talking about Christians, how Christians approach the spiritual world. You have this big spectrum. So at the fellowship here, since we hold the Bible up as the inspired word of God, when the Bible says something... We take it seriously. Right? So when it says in Ephesians chapter six, verse twelve, that we are in a battle not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heaven, when it says that, we don't take it figuratively. We take it literally. We take it seriously. Because if we were to read that passage and take that seriously, not picking and choosing what from the Bible we want to believe and not, but understanding that it's entirely inspired, this means that the devil is not some sort of figment of our imagination. That the devil is not some sort of, I don't even know if the devil wears red tights. You know, I mean, that's, it's, it's, it's completely cartoonized, right, by our culture. So uh, we, we believe that, yes, the devil is not that, but that the devil is real even today. And that, as it says in Ephesians 6, the devil and his demons are shooting flaming arrows at every single one of us to tempt us and to take us down. Right now, temptation is not sin because the devil is the one shooting flaming arrows of temptation at us. Now, what we, if, we, if we entertain that temptation, that's what causes us to sin or to flee from sin. But just the mere temptation, the fact that we are being tempted is not sin. So as we look at this passage here, we see that the devil's MO is to ruin not only us, but everyone around us through our fall and through us entertaining and living a life of sin. Then this is why in Ephesians 6, we read about this thing called the full armor of God. Now, if, you, if you're not daily praying this, I encourage you to do so, right? When you wake up in the morning, just pray through the armor of God and pray, Lord, I put on, uh, I pray and I put on the belt of truth. Help my mind be full of truth. Uh, help me discern truth from error. Help me put on the breastplate of righteousness. Help me seek first your kingdom and your righteousness today. God, I pray that you would help me put on the feet fitted with the gospel of peace Help me understand. Help me be a messenger of your peace and your grace today and your gospel today. Help me put on the shield of faith. Anytime the evil one tries to tempt me and shoot flaming arrows at me, I pray that you would help me understand and discern and and that I would grow in my faith uh, and my trust in you. Help me put on the helmet of salvation. Lord, help me understand. Help me stand tall, understanding that uh, my identity is fully in you. And lastly, help me put on the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Help me meditate on your word. Help me understand your word. Help me, help me respond with your word in those moments of temptation and throughout the day. Right? You see how simple that can be just as a daily prayer. And what we're doing in that moment, we are spiritually getting ourselves ready because we are in a battle. Right? How foolish would it be to walk out into a, a, a war zone in civilian clothes? How foolish would that be? Yet we read in Ephesians 6 that we are in a spiritual battle. That's why, and we are in a spiritual world, which is why we need to put on the full armor of God. So when you look at Mark chapter 3, And and we've been walking through the book of Mark, and we've made it all the way up to Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 35, that we're going to be looking at today. And if you reflect back on and look at all the things that had happened from Mark chapter 1 all the way till now, we realize that a spiritual battle is going on. And even before Jesus entered the world, when you look through the Old Testament, we see that there was a spiritual battle going on. So when Jesus enters the world, and, and then even more so when Jesus here begins his active ministry, you see, you see the forces clashing together, right? Which is why you see opposition, why you see uh, temptation, why you see uh, a, a lot of fighting happening. You see a lot of this happening here and conflict happening in these first three chapters because you see the kingdom of dark come against the kingdom of light and this clashing is happening. So let's look at Mark chapter three, verse 20 to 35, and then we'll uh, look at what it says here. Jesus entered a house and the crowd gathered again so that they were not even able to eat. Now, when his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he is out of his mind. Okay, just take a note there, uh, verse 21, because they said he is out of his mind. Now verse 22. The scribes who had come down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebul and he drives out demons by the ruler of the demons. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions unless he first. Ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. Truly, I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Because they were saying, remember, uh, verse twenty-one. Because they said in verse twenty-one, they are out. He's out of his mind. Well, look at what it says here in verse thirty. Because they were saying. He has an unclean spirit. We'll visit that just in a little bit, but that's very—that's the same sentence structure going on. Verse 31, his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him and told him, look, your mother, your brothers, and your sisters are outside asking for you. He replied to them, who are my mother and my brothers? Looking at those sitting in a circle around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. It's interesting how in this passage, um, you actually see there there are four D's going on. And as Justin and I, Justin's preaching over at uh, our Two Rivers campus right now, and as Justin and I were praying through and preparing this message together, uh, we thought it would be neat to walk through four D's, the four D's of this passage. So the first D is doubt, and that's what we see, we see a large measure of doubt Going on in this passage. So if we just think about all the things that had happened from Mark chapter 1 onward, uh, a lot has happened. And in this passage, if you were there, right, if you were there in that moment, uh, there, verse 20, there, there in the house or in and around the house and you were a part of Jesus's family even more so, right? And you had seen him from his birth, either because he was your brother or because he was your son, and you had seen everything that had happened from chapter one all the way to chapter three, you likely would have noticed a big shift happen in Jesus's life, right? Especially if you knew him since he was a little kid, right? You're like, even if you were his friend, you would have been like, wow, something must have, like something has changed, Like, he is going, like, this guy is not just laissez-faire going on about life, just going here, smelling the dandelions. I mean, the, the guy is, like, on mission. Like, a lot has happened in three chapters, when you think about it. I mean, Jesus, when you look at these three chapters, he had this incredible sense of urgency about him. He probably didn't even eat or sleep. I mean, I don't even know if he did eat. I mean, he did, right? But did he even... Like, there's no... there's There's nothing really about here where we see him sitting down and resting, especially in these first... Compared to everything else, all the activity that was going on. So he was going hard because he was... He had this passion. He had this vision. He had this greater why that was driving him. So that's probably why in this passage, starting from verse 20, we see his family growing in concern, right? We see that. We see his family concern. Even if you look at verse 21, uh, when his family heard this, they set out to restrain him because they said he is out of his mind, right? Probably because seeing everything that had happened, comparing that short snippet of what just happened to his entire life, they're like, something is up with Jesus, Maybe they were concerned about his emotional health. Maybe they were concerned about his pace in life, right? Whatever the list of concerns they might have had for Jesus, there's probably actually a large measure of doubt mixed into it all. Man, if he keeps on going like this, what's going to happen? If he keeps on going like this, I mean, why is he even doing all this? Because they weren't even really sure of his identity either. So there's this big measure of doubt that they had toward Jesus because they just had never seen him minister and act the way that he had been doing. And this, this doubt, it's interesting, this doubt was actually really similar to the doubt that the scribes and the religious leaders had of Jesus as well. Right, I said, take a look at verse twenty-one and verses verses thirty. We we see it here on the screen too. I I I pointed out because it's the same sentence structure. And when you look at these two verses, because they said he's out of his mind, that's what his family said of Jesus. There is doubt, right? You see doubt creeping in. But then you see in Mark three, you know, in in thirty, because they were saying he is an unclean spirit. Both of them are measures of doubt. So the neat thing about Mark, the way he wrote this, is that verse 21 and verse 30 actually sandwich what happens between verse 22 and 29. This sentence structure actually sandwiches what's going on. So before verse 21, you see his family, and then after verse 30, you see his family. So what's happening between verse 22 and 29 is his family is likely making their way there. So in between 22 and 29, Jesus then has this interaction with the scribes and the religious leaders. It's just this brief interruption and then he gets back to the family and the family comes and addresses them as well. So Mark is bookending this passage with verse 22 to 29 in the middle. So at this point, right? If you look at this passage here, at this point, it'd be basically, it'd, it'd be pretty easy to dismiss the interaction that he has with his family, right? It, it basically, it's like, okay, you know, throw away the bread, let's get to the meat, right? Throw away the the, the the bookended verses about his family, that's probably not that important. Let's kind of skip over it, especially if you are a parent, you're like, no, I don't want my kids to think about this like me, and, you know, they need to, they, they need to, they, they can't say, oh, go away, parent, you know, I'm only going to follow Jesus, right? So we just kind of throw the carbs away, it's kind of how we sometimes see this, and we get straight to the barbecue, right? We get straight to the meat in the middle. Well, it's interesting because when we do that, and when we approach this passage this way, and kind of throw away the bookended parts, and throw away the family components, uh, we, we kind of dismiss it, and we say, you know, it's probably just a family feud, is what we think. It's probably just a family feud as to why that's happening. And and, and if we do that, we would actually miss a huge message that Mark is trying to teach us about knowing God, about uh, the kingdom of God, about understanding faith, and about following Jesus. Because when you follow Jesus, this is what he's trying to show us here with the pieces of bread, right? With the outside parts. He's saying, when you follow Jesus... Yes, he's talking about family, but he's actually saying when you follow Jesus, you become a part of a new family. Where you enter into a new family. That when we gather together here, that this is not just convenience because we might live in Mount Juliet or in and around here. That this is not just convenience because we love the worship team and, or the building or, or anything else that's going on. That this is not just, that we're not just mere acquaintances that we might see once or twice a week. That actually, when you follow Jesus, that we are family. And it's not that we are family and then the Two Rivers campus is another family or they're kind of our siblings. No, we're the same family. And, and it's not just that we are the same family because we have the same name but that we're also family with Crosspoint Church. We're also family with Family Church, right? We're also, or Friendship Church. We're also family with Joy Church. We're also, you know what I mean? Like everyone who declares that Jesus is Lord, they are our brothers and they are our sisters. Now you might disagree. You might have different tastes. You might, you know, not, not have the same sports team. <laughs> Right, But all that is minor because we are actually the same family. We're brothers and we're sisters. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach us here. He's like, when you follow Jesus, it's not just about my family and your family and we're relatives, but we're actually the same family. And, and what he's also saying here is that your old family, like your earthly family, doesn't go away when you follow Jesus. There's just a new sense of order that happens. There's a new sense of allegiance that we need to consider. Where following Jesus and doing His will takes precedence over following your parents and doing their will, especially when your parents uh, stand in contrast to following God. Right? If they, if your parents believe in the Lord, and they are actively serving God, then yes, obviously we need to take that into consideration. But ultimately God's will is higher than our parents' wills. That's what we're trying to understand here and and that's what Jesus is trying to describe here. So that's that whole first component of there's just a lot of doubt going on. Uh, There's also a lot of denial going on here as well, which is our second D, because if you look at verse 22, we see how the scribes had come down from Jerusalem to investigate Jesus and his ministry. So the scribes, uh, you know, we see here in verse 22 that they, who had come down from Jerusalem. So they were basically a delegation from the Sanhedrin uh, who they were, they were sent by the Sanhedrin to, uh, to investigate Jesus because they wanted to deny Jesus. They were kind of sent with a mission to figure out how can we deny Jesus uh, how can we delegitimize his ministry? That was their MO. That's what they were thinking because the scribes were the legal experts of the day, right? So the Sanhedrin who is legal and religious leaders and kind of leader, they sent the, le- they sent the lawyers down. They sent the lawyers down to try to build a case against Jesus to uphold that and to spread that across the The nation. So upon arrival, they basically pronounce that Jesus is possessed by Beelzebul and that as a demon, that Jesus is a demon and that Jesus as a demon drives out demons. So I wonder if at this point of the ministry of Jesus, the scribes had even really observed and followed Jesus around. I wonder if they ever had with open hands investigated what Jesus had said and and investigated the implications of all the ministry that had happened or if they just came with this assumption that no, he is of the devil because he is not for us and he seems to be upending everything that we are about. In a sense, Jesus was challenging their authority uh, he was threatening. He was so threatening their authority, and they were so feeling challenged by Jesus's huge following that they probably just, you know, they're like, "Oh, we got to come up with some sort of excuse to delegitimize what he was doing." And because he's acting out in the supernatural, and because he heals sickness and casts out demons, there's probably some uh, conspiracy theory that he come, you know, he developed. And said, oh, you know, demons, he's a demon. And that's probably why he's chasing out his friends. And they're probably going to go play, you know, poker afterwards and have fun. And they, I mean, he's, they're just probably coming up with some sort of elaborate scheme is what they were probably trying to do. I mean, doesn't this sound, honestly, doesn't it sound like uh, that they were just, that the scribes were just trying to act, they were just like acting as bullies. That they kind of came from Jerusalem, sent by the Sanhedrin. And you know, big, pompous, fair, all the way down. And they come to Jesus and they're like, Hey, we are bigger. We are, it's kind of like the bully on the playground. We are bigger. We are taller. I'm not, I might not be smarter than you, but I'm going to be, I'm bigger and taller and stronger. And I'm going to come like this, right? That's probably what they were thinking. And then they get into an argument with the kid. The kid finally stands up and speaks back instead of being scared and says something intelligent. And then the scribe's like, well, you know, you know if, you don't, if you don't follow me, then then your mom, okay, your mom. And then the, you know, anyone here know exactly what I'm talking about? Yeah, a few. Okay, yeah. You just kind of speak intelligently to the bully and the bully's like, what? <laughs> like, this is too much effort. I got to run away. You know, I'm not going to bother you anymore. Right? I mean, that, like, it, it kind of feels like that it kind of feels like that's the interaction that the scribes are having with Jesus. Now, okay, maybe their accusations against Jesus were a bit more serious than that. But regardless, I'm really not really sure. I'm not really sure if they thought that denial through. Because in a sense, they were trying to deny Jesus by saying, like this was their argument, by saying, hey, you're demon-possessed, so you're going to, through darkness, chase out darkness is basically what they were saying, but it doesn't make sense. Cause you look at verse 23, uh, from 23 to 27, we see the next D, uh, which is division. And we see a lot of division happening between verse 23 and 27, uh, because Jesus responds to these accusations and these denials. So verse 23, let's read it again. So he summoned them and spoke to them in parables, right? This is what Jesus is saying. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is finished. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his possessions until he first ties up the strong man, then he can plunder his house. So essentially, Jesus says, hey, come here, scribes. Let's look at this situation logically. Why would... Uh, okay, how, how does what you're suggesting work? I mean, mathematically speaking, what you are saying literally makes no sense. Why would Satan, whose kingdom and aim is all about attacking God's kingdom, tormenting people, and keeping people from freedom, why would Satan, who wants to keep people from freedom, grant people freedom? Right? Why would he do that? Why would Satan thwart his own plans and strategy, causing his own kingdom and his own house to struggle and to divide? Why would Satan, who you and I know uh, and believe is completely outmatched by God and subservient to him, do anything to help God's kingdom? Satan would be finished if he had done that. Right? Satan's not in the business of helping God, so why would, if I was representing Satan, why would I help God? Right? So you, you see when Jesus breaks it down like that, when he, uh, and, and that's likely the reasoning he was using as he, as he said what he said in verse 23 to 27. You see how the scribe's argument completely falls apart. The division that they're trying to bring about just doesn't make sense. Right? That division just does not make sense. So then we go to verse 28 to 30, right? We see the last two, uh, a few verses of the sandwiched in meat of the passage here. And we see here that, that Jesus makes a clear distinction, right? That's the fourth D, distinction between what is forgivable and what isn't. Verse 28 says this, Truly I tell you, people will be forgiven for all sins and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he is an unclean spirit. This is often a misunderstood and misinterpreted or confusing passage because it says, you know, whoever uh, people will be forgiven for all sins and then, you know, there's... Uh, in the next verse, it's like, oh, but then you can never be forgiven because there's an eternal sin. Uh, Jesus here, the reason he says what he says, we have to understand everything through the context of what's happening, right? I know a lot of times we like taking out verses here and there and just completely isolating them, but sometimes we just don't fully understand, kind of like, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I think I saw that on the on, on some billboard sign this last week, uh, and it was... Um, It it was like, it was a gym, you know, it was like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I was like, I don't know if the gym is Christian or not, but I'm like, that's hilarious that that is on the billboard of a gym, right? (laughs) And we like doing that, right? We kind of like treating the Bible as a series of fortune telling, you know, verses that we find in cookies. But when we look at these verses here, especially this, it's so important for us that we understand what this says in the midst of this entire passage. Because it makes a lot of sense when we look at it within this context. Okay, so what we see here is Jesus is not hes, he's not nullifying salvation for anyone who doubts. That's not what he's saying here. Right? He's not saying, hey, if you doubt, maybe you had a period of your life you're, where you were really passionate about the Lord and right now you're just coming because you're coming you're just coming because someone's bringing you and you just aren't really sure because you doubt and because you have questions. And he's not saying that all of a sudden your salvation does not count or that commitment that you made to follow the Lord. He's not saying that doubt causes that to be nullified. And he's he's saying that, hey, even if you deny Jesus, that doesn't mean that your salvation is wiped away. That's not what he's saying here. Because he's basically saying, if, you ha- if, you, if, if there's a lack of knowledge, if, if you're denying God, if you're, if you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, right? If you're denying God, and yes, you deny God, but you don't really truly have full knowledge as to who he is, that's not really, you're not fully really denying God. Does that make sense there? right and we see this is what happening this is what's happening with the scribes i mean just just consider peter's denial right peter denied god didn't he peter denied god by speech but not by heart at the crucifixion and and we see jesus that that's that's not unforgivable because jesus reinstates peter on the seashore in john 21 right jesus is saying hey if you have questions if you have doubts if you are denying god Bring it on, right? He's basically saying, I am not afraid of your questions, right? And for anyone here for our church, and if you have friends who have questions, don't stop the questions. Bring the questions. Bring them to your life group. Bring them to the team here. Bring them to the staff here, right? Bring them to the elders here. Let's study together. Let's work through those uh, together because questions are good and they are how our faith deepens. Why? Why is that? Because spiritual growth is more a matter of a direction than it is a destination. You don't arrive on this side of eternity. And even when you make a commitment to follow the Lord or recommit your life to following him, it's not that in that instant you are fully perfect and you have no doubts. And, and when you make that commitment to follow Jesus, that all your doubts are wiped away. And if you, if you doubt, you lack faith. That's not what this is. Because following Jesus is not about, I have made a commitment to Jesus, now I have arrived. No, it's a, I have turned, and now I'm facing a different direction. I'm not facing the direction of the world. I'm not facing the direction of me. I'm facing the direction of God, and I'm going to work this out. I'm going to follow the Lord, and he's going to shape me. He's going to mature me. He's going to transform me and those around me. It's a direction direction. Growing in Jesus is a direction, it's not a destination. So in this passage, when Jesus talks about the unforgivable sin, right, when he's talking about blaspheming the Holy Spirit, he is referring to those who reject him, knowing fully well that Jesus is who he said he was. Right? He's talking about people who know the whole story. And in light of knowing the whole story, still deny God. He is not talking about those who have doubts. He is not talking about those who are on a spiritual journey in a direction to the Lord and they have hiccups or mountains they need to climb over and or pits of or valleys they need to journey through. He's not talking about that. He is talking about those who express defiant hostility toward God, knowing fully well what they are doing. That is what he is talking about here. He's basically saying that those people are the ones who are beyond forgiveness. And when you look at the context of the day, this is actually not a new idea. The scribes were very familiar with this concept. Uh, One commentator puts it well. The scribes were thoroughly familiar with this concept under the rubric, the profanation of the name. Uh, which generally denoted speech, which defies God's power and majesty. The scribal tradition considered blasphemy no less seriously than did Jesus. Okay, so the scribes understood this. They understood this concept of an unforgivable sin, and they upheld that toward God. What's crazy about all this is that when the scribes said what they said about Jesus, they were basically blaspheming God. It's basically what they knew about the concept. They didn't know that Jesus was God, but by blaspheming and denying Jesus, they were, they were committing the unforgivable sin with what they knew. Right? Which is likely why Jesus said, hey, wait on, wait, wait, wait a second, wait a second. Let's talk about this concept of blaspheming God let's talk about that and see what this means because the scribes were very familiar with this concept and and Jesus I believe was helping the scribes see hey this concept that you understand just take a moment if I truly am God what do you think you are doing here and I think in every interaction that Jesus had with scribes and religious leaders in various cities, a lot of times we feel like it can be harsh or it looks as harsh, but I believe that in every instant, Jesus was trying to turn them to God in the way that they knew. And do you not think that, especially with the scribes, Jesus had to approach them in this manner using the law and the principles that they intimately knew? Versus you see his interaction with Samaritan woman at the well. And every person that Jesus interacts with, he doesn't interact in the same way, which is beautiful about, um, about the ministry of Jesus and who he is, right? I believe that Jesus wanted to save the scribes and he wanted to help them see the light, move away from the darkness and see Jesus for who he truly was. In other words, Jesus was trying to help the scribes and everyone else here understand that Jesus's ministry of healing, that his ministry of freedom, that his ministry of casting out demons was not a ministry of darkness, but it was a ministry of light. And if it was a ministry of light, right? If it was a ministry of light, then that means his ministry was a sign of the kingdom of God breaking in and through the darkness of the day. isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible to see how Jesus uniquely approaches the scribes? Isn't it amazing to see, even if you were to look at your fingerprints, that every single one of us has different fingerprints? I mean, whoever looks at their fingerprints, right? And even when you get them scanned or you have to get them stamped, who can tell the difference between one person's fingerprints and another? Yet there are billions of people living on the earth today, and no one shares the same fingerprint, and there are billions of people that have died and that are going to be coming, then no one shares the same fingerprint. Now, if God so uniquely created each and every one of us to craft even our fingerprints to be different, do you not think that Jesus would meet you where you are today? I know there are some of you here who you have doubts and you have things that you deny, Right? Jesus wants to meet you with those and where you're at. Jesus is not saying, hey, you got to clean yourself up or you got to do all this on your own before I can address and help you work through those. No, he's saying, bring them to me today. Just come as you are. And instead of saying, I need to have all these answered before I can approach Jesus. Instead, what if you were to say, okay, Jesus, I want to come before you with open hands I wanna change my direction toward you and ask that you would help me work through these doubts and these denials that I have. Imagine what would change about your life if you approached God in that manner.